What do you do on Sundays? We talk about Kate Blanchett, the acting, the costumes, the awards, but mostly the Blanchett of it all. Oh, oh I'm not acting. <laughs> you think this is a love affair? I saw you, Erica. Meeting in the middle. This is Sundays with Kate, and I'm your host, Mortada El Fadl. Welcome to Sundays with Kate, the podcast series about the films of Kate Blanchett. Every week we choose a Kate Blanchett film and discuss it with a guest. This week we are going a little further back in Kate Blanchett's career to 2006 and Babel. And for this discussion, I am very excited to welcome to the podcast critic for In Session Film and Jump Cut Online. You might also know her from the 300 Passions podcast. Please say hello to Zita Short. Hi, Zita. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to be here because I just love the podcast and I'm a big Blanchett fan. So it's just wonderful. Yes, it's wonderful to me too, because I love to talk to big Blanchett fans like me. So I'm so happy you you are talking with me today about this film that I feel maybe is a little forgotten in her um, filmography. Definitely, yes. Along with, I think, her other Brad Pitt collaboration where she's not really the focal point in either of those films, I would say. Mm-hmm. I think it, in Benjamin Button, she's definitely much more than in Babel, but we'll get into that. <laughs> So first, um, I just want to ask you, you said you're a fan of Blanchett. So tell me about that. What do you think of her? What do you like about her, her screen persona? I'll admit it took me an embarrassingly long time to figure out that Kate Blanchett was a sort of prestige actress. I think most of my original encounters with her in cinema were her roles in mainstream blockbusters where you have the critically derided Indiana Jones film that she was in. So it took me quite a while to see things like Blue Jasmine and Carol. And I was so uneducated about the cinematic landscape at the time that I remember thinking, oh, this is weird that that Blanchett actress is in this sort of art house film, not knowing anything. And I remember, of course, Carol, she's amazing. I was just completely captivated by her presence. And then I think when I got to a point when I was reading more about film and I was actually reading about her career, I realised, oh no, this is a really acclaimed, beloved actress. And I started to track down more of her work and to seek out films purely because she was in them. And I think the thing that really sets her apart from some of her peers is that I think she's really good at capturing a lot of those old Hollywood qualities, but she's very glamorous and sophisticated and is able to do these arch line readings and seems very self-conscious on screen in a sort of Bergman-esque way. Mm. And at the same time, I think she can also be really refreshingly modern. I I don't think it feels like a complete put-on. And 
to me, that's what's so exciting about her, where I always feel like, oh, I'm getting this variation on a performance that might have been given by a Vivian Lee or mm. a Grace Kelly even at times. But I'm also getting these dashes of technique that wouldn't have necessarily been around then. And she's so versatile too, which I'm sure, obviously, watching all of her films, you would have discussed. Yeah, yeah. She's so versatile. And this is great, like, um, hearing you mention Vivian Lee and Grace Kelly. I never actually thought of um, Grace Kelly in relationship with, with Kate, but I have thought a lot of Vivian Lee, especially because, you know, she did Blue Jasmine and, of course, Vivian's big role is Streetcar. Um, and I think what I love about actresses like Kate and Vivian is that there is a theatricality and sort of otherworldliness to their performances. Like it's never hundred percent a real person. And I don't want to see real people on screen. I want to see movie stars. I want to see actors acting and, you know, big performances are sort of kind of looked down upon um, in modern cinema, but this is, it's what I like. And I suspect it's what you like. Um, you know, I want to see them act, right? Definitely, yes. And I think it's great, too, that she does make really good choices at a lot of times. Obviously not 100%, no actress is hitting at 100. But I think it is really telling that she's built up these great collaborative relationships with these top auteurs. And just the fact that she seems to be so professional, too, I don't think you ever hear stories about Blanchett berating people on set. And so yeah. I think it just makes sense that she's had such a long, successful career. Yeah, and a varied career at that. Um, hmm. And I think one of the things that when I started my fandom of Blanchett, I kind of did, didn't like, but now I admire, is that she takes a lot of smaller parts just because she likes the story or likes the director or likes the cast or for whatever reason. Um, and, you know, as somebody who likes her, I always want her to be the center of the film, but she is a lot of the times not the center of the film. Um, but the film is interesting for including her and for other reasons that might not be about her at all. And I like that she makes these choices. And one of them is Babel. Yes, yes, definitely an interesting film that we'll be discussing today, especially because with the character that she plays, where the circumstances that she she's in are so dramatic, you would think that she would sort of be the story of mm -hmm. the film, but she's not really in terms of the performances. Yeah, totally. So Babel is directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu, and the screenplay is by Guillermo Arriega. It was released in 2006. And it is a, it's sort of four interlocking stories about themes of globalization, family alienation, about people in quote unquote foreign lands. Um, I think if we try to summarize the plot, it will take us 10 minutes. Um, so let's just say that Kate plays Susan Jones um, an American tourist who gets injured on a trip to Morocco. Um, her husband is with her, played by Brad Pitt. And the story goes back to show us their children with their nanny, played by Adriana Barraza. And we spend some time in Morocco with some other characters and some time in Tokyo with Rinko Kikuchi as a deaf young woman 
dealing with a family crisis. Does that sort of summarize it, Zita? <laughs> yes, sort of. I think it's so convoluted at some points, especially with the wrinkled coochie subplot where her connection to the other characters seems very tenuous. So again, I think if we really tried to map it out, it would just, we'd be here forever. Yes, but suffice it to say all these interlocking four stories that take place all over the world in four different countries, Mexico, the U.S., Morocco, and Japan, in the end converge and come together. And there is a connection, no matter how tenuous it is, and I agree with you, some of it is very tenuous. But this is something that Iñárritu loves to do. It's like one of his trademarks. I think in Amoros Peros, which was his first movie, or at least the first movie that um, came out to international audiences, there is also this, this trademark. Before we get into Babel, I wanted to ask you about what do you think of Iñárritu as a director? Some of his films include Beautiful, 21 Grams, Birdman, and everybody's favorite, The Revenant. <laughs> He is probably one of the most controversial figures in cinema today, I would say, at least in award circles, where I think he was initially embraced with Amores Peros when that came out as this sort of, not grindhouse, but this filmmaker who was willing to work with a sort of genre film aesthetic. And then I think once he started duplicating the same technique where, ooh, the interlocking storylines, but with bigger stars and a bigger budget and more of a sense of self-importance, people started to get more irritated by it. And I definitely think it's undeniable there's an element of pretentiousness to his work. There is a portentous quality Mm -hmm. in the way that a lot of his films are staged and I think with The Revenant in particular, that came up, especially because of the fact that it had this very over-the-top awards campaign too. Yes. And I'll admit that I am irritated by a lot of his flourishes as a director, and I do think he has talent. I'm not one of those people who thinks that he's a complete hack who's Mm -hmm. just getting by on telling stories about misery, but I do leave a lot of his films thinking okay, but what was the point here? It's not enough to go. A lot of people in the world are suffering and that's sad. That's not profound. I think you have to go a bit further. And Mm -hmm. I think it can be especially frustrating because you have a movie like Beautiful, where I think that Javier Bardem is very good in it, is giving a great performance, but the screenplay is just dreadful. And it's so frustrating to see all of these resources being directed towards Mm -hmm. stories that don't seem to be deserving of all of that talent. Yeah. I think you touched on a couple of things that I totally agree with you. I think there is a note of self-importance in all of his movies as a director. Like, um, even if we don't touch on the narratives, I think in every directorial choice, there are sort of flourishes that he's trying to tell us, oh, I'm a master at this. I know how to do this. And Um, The Revenant, I actually like that movie. And I think also one of the things that you touched upon is that it had a very huge off-putting awards campaign. Like it was, and I think when, that's why I'm always like trying, do I not like this movie or do I just not like the way 
he and Leonardo DiCaprio and everybody involved talked about it for like half a year because and I saw it really late I saw it like after they've been talking about it for months and when I saw it I was like okay this is pretty good it's like maybe there is a lot of scenes I don't relate to it's about you know fatherhood and I don't know all these other things that you know straight middle-aged men are obsessed with that I am not as a queer person um but I found it like as a filmmaking piece it was pretty good and as a performance from Leonardo DiCaprio who is an actor my relationship with him is always so tenuous because I never think of him when I'm not watching him like he's not somebody I was like oh Leonardo DiCaprio has a new movie I'm excited like when like I do with Kate for example or other actors I like but when I watch him I always find oh this is a good performance he knows how to do this thing (laughs) so that's kind of what I think of Iñárritu but let's talk about Babel a little bit um I've, I've I've liked the Revenant, I've also liked Beautiful. I, I agree with you that Javier Bardem gives an amazing performance in that, although it's like just so much misery. So yes, you're right. The screenplay is terrible. But Babel has always been the movie that I sort of just didn't have a lot of thoughts about. Like I saw it when it came out, obviously, because it had Kate. And then that was a year that Kate had so many other movies. And obviously I fell in love with Notes and a Scandal, which came like a few weeks after it. And then I forgot about Babel at all. I, I don't think I've ever thought of it until I watched it just a couple of days ago to talk to you. But let's start with you, Zita. What do you think of Babel? So I've sort of, my opinion on the film has definitely shifted over the years where when I first saw it, I think I was quite impressed by the technique on display. And I remember especially the score really resonated with me. And I thought, oh, this is moving. And I remember appreciating, especially Blanchett's performance. I think she's really good at working in this milieu as a privileged, uptight American woman. I just think she's so good at that. So I enjoyed her, well, not enjoyed, but admired what she was doing on screen. And then I think during the time when the Inyaritu backlash was especially strong, I saw it again for some reason. And I suspect that it was the fact that there were so many, oh, he's pretentious jokes online, did cause me to turn against it. And especially aspects of the Rinko Kikuchi subplot, where I just sort of thought, why are we using the fact that this girl is sexualizing herself as in an, oh, she's tragic thing. I I just sort of get sick of that as a plot point where, oh, this woman wants to have sex, which naturally means that she has Freudian issues that need to be resolved and she could never just have a healthy sexual appetite. So that annoyed me. And again, the I am a master elements of the (laughs) the filmmaking sort of got on my nerves. But seeing it again for a third time, I think I have a more balanced view where sort of like you, I can't bring myself to violently hate it in the way that some people do. I still think it is well-made. And my biggest issue is, again, what's the point? Because it's sort of playing with all Mm -hmm. of these ideas, but ultimately it seems to have this very vague, well, we should all just come together and no matter what social class we're in or what Mm -hmm. race we're a part of, 
we need to band together and deal with these issues of inequality. And it just seems mushy as a message yes. at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, totally. I agree with you. I agree with all what you said. It's like the message is kind of like, sounds a little simplistic, like to make this two hours plus movie that takes place in four different continents with all these sort of big issues like, you know, immigration and globalization, terrorism and all these kinds of things. And for the the message at the end to be like, let's all be nice to each other. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, um, what are you doing here? Um, and I also agree with you about the Rinko Kukuchi character. I think it is so obviously a young woman written by older men. Um, and that's sort of how they see her. But I think the performance is so, like, I think it's the best performance in the film and it sort of transcends how simplistically the character is written. Um, and yeah, I also had those sort of like, you know, that that part when she sort of um, tries to seduce the policeman and all that stuff. I was like, is this icky? Is this, what is this exactly? Mm. I, I think one of the things I wanted was just, a bit more subtlety, and especially because with the Oscars in particular, I do tend to associate the 2000s with this period in which being a serious actress was equated with taking your clothes off and getting naked. And wow, that's her putting herself out there and sacrificing something for the part. And not that I'm shaming actresses who do nude scenes, but I definitely think there was this element of performative, well, what bravery. And it just seems like, oh, so you're still uncomfortable with women generally being naked. It has to be presented as this thing that's shameful in a way and again her performance is very good I think she does transcend a lot of the material and I think makes really good use of some of those early scenes where she's just out with her friends and you don't really know what's going on with her character yet and I think creates this aura of mystery while also letting you in on the fact that she's still this very Kello teenage girl who doesn't quite know what she's doing and her awkward seduction attempts, instead of feeling icky during that section of the film, I think you're really in her headspace during those scenes. And I put that on her performance. Yeah, yeah, I agree. She, she's great in it. But let's go back to Iñárritu and his self-importance. I mean, like, even from the title, this is a movie that's announces its grandioseness, right? It's about the biblical story of Babel. Um, I, I'm not sure exactly of the story, but I did read the Wikipedia page, so it's something like... <laughs> so let me look at it while I'm talking. It's it's the story where mankind challenged God by building a tower and then God pan- punished them by introducing the confusion of multiple languages. I, that's what Wikipedia says. So it's basically, that's the story. That's the grandiose concept. And that's why it's called Babel. And it's, it is about miscommunication. And it starts from like, if we're talking about Kate and Brad, there is a miscommunication between them as a couple who are suffering through a crisis. They're in Morocco because they just lost a child. Um, and so they're trying to reconnect, although they don't do a very good job of it. And then there is also the sort of, you know, the Rinko Kikuchi character is trying to connect with her father, with the policeman investigating her father. 
And then when we go to the Adriana Barraza, the Gael Garcia Bernal story, that is a more sort of like people versus government miscommunication. Uh, and that's the part where the story sort of like goes from the personal to the system and how the system mm-hmm. oppresses people um, due to miscommunication. Of course, they they go to Mexico and then they can't back, can't come back to America. Let's start with the Kate and Brad story. I like watching Kate and Brad Pitt together. I think they made this film and they made The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. In both movies here, there are a couple um, reconnecting and they do, spoiler alert, they do reconnect by the end of the movie and you can see sort of like the bond. They are very good, I think, at playing the bond between each other. Um, And one of the things I liked about them is that they are the only quote unquote movie stars in the movie. But I think it really like kind of casting Kate and Brad, these iconic actors, these iconic movie stars in these sort of roles that are, they're not smaller, but they're just as equal to all the other roles. They're not bigger than the other roles. They're not smaller. But I think the glamour and the sort of movie star magnetism they bring is suitable to the characters because their characters are sort of, privileged, entitled, sort of like think they're above everybody else around them, even though, you know, they're not unkind. It's just they work within that entitlement that their characters have. So what did you think of that, of their story and sort of casting these big stars in these roles? I agree with your assessment. I think I was pleased by the fact that they're both willing to make their characters so unpleasant at times where the the privilege and entitlement really comes through in their performances. And I think Blanchett in particular doesn't overdo it as upset, disgruntled wife who can't quite bring herself to forgive her husband. I think she's quite harsh and unforgiving in those scenes. But Brad Pitt as a scene partner doesn't fall back on the idea that his character is just doing everything that he possibly could to get his wife to open up to him. I think he also plays it as someone who's sort of half-heartedly making an attempt to repair their marriage. Mm -hmm. And I think that really worked for me. But at the same time, I kind of wish that the other subplots had featured the same nuances where I quite like it when you get stories about privilege and entitlement where the privileged and entitled people are presented in a way where you're asked initially to extend sympathy to them for something bad that has happened in their life before realising that, oh no, they're horrible people and they're probably racist or misogynistic or just generally classist. And I think that's quite an effective way to portray the fact that, oh yes, someone like Jeff Bezos might have issues. That does not make up for the fact that he's doing all sorts of awful things. And yeah, I I just think it's a good way to tell a story, but I don't think this is as effective as, say, Mudbound, which I think did Mm -hmm. quite a good job of telling the story of this white family without ever romanticizing them as some sort of old South gone with the wind style, beautiful Mm -hmm. family. Yeah. 
The other story, what you know, let's talk about Adriana Barraza and Gail Dressier-Bernal and that story. That one was the sort of hardest um, one for me to watch just because, like, even though Kate Blanchett is literally shot in the shoulder and spends the whole movie bleeding almost to death, I think I found the Adriana Barraza story harder to watch because the minute she crossed the border, I'm like, oh, this is going to be hard. She's not going to be able to come back. This is going to, you know, it's going to be tough for her. Um, and, you know, I'm from Sudan. And if you have a, a Sudanese passport, you're stopped everywhere. Um, you're treated like a criminal. So I always sort of like just psychologically, um, I can't deal with with airports and passport control and all of that. I just, it's, um, you know, I've lived in America for a long time. So now I can travel f- <laughs> I could travel a little bit more freely, but for the longest time I couldn't. And so those scenes just, just were very hard for me to watch. And I actually think that performance, the Adriana Barraza performance, maybe because of this personal connection to that story, is the one that sort of stayed with me. It's the one that I came back to. And she is so good at charting the story of this woman who has so much kindness in her heart um, and is just the system just doesn't doesn't meet her with the same kindness. It's so frustrating. And I think that is maybe the story that resonated the most with me. People against the system is something that we all deal with it all the time, no matter what the system is, no matter what system is oppressing you, there's always something, right? And I think that's maybe the story that I felt warranted the grandioseness of the script, unlike maybe the other ones. Yes, and that was one of those situations where I almost thought the film didn't benefit from having a whole lot of different plot points that converged. I could imagine one long, grandiose epic that is just about her almost spiritual quest going through the desert, trying to find these annoying children and knowing that her her life has already essentially been ruined. But if she ends up being responsible for these kids starving in the desert, then obviously it will be horrible for her. And just this sense of her having to give up everything just because of this one privileged family's whims is obviously horrible and you really feel for her. And I think that's probably the one that has the most texture, I would say, in terms of her going to this wedding. You can sense that it's so important for her to finally have this connection with her family and also that feeling of her being in America, but she's not really in America because she never feels this sense of permanence there. And so I think all of that is documented in good detail and you just sort of want more of it. It's almost frustrating to feel like this very emotionally resonant subplot is still kind of a plot device within one big story. Yes. Yeah. And this is sort of brings me to the question that I want to talk to you about. It's that, you know, we talked about how Inyarita's trademark is these converging stories that he sort of maybe tenuously brings back together. Um, So I wanted to ask you, he loves to do this, but does it really work in this? Sometimes I felt like it was maybe a little bit over-engineered, like to just bring them all together. And I'm like, okay, you tried it, but maybe you were about 50% successful. (laughs) 
Yes, I think it's an odd case where you look at someone like Robert Altman, say, who I think does this, but in a very different way where he often has a much larger cast and you're getting these very brief snapshots in time of what one of 25 characters was doing on a specific day. And I think it tends to feel less laboured in something like Nashville, where you have such a wide canvas that he's painting on. And so Mm -hmm. you don't think, oh, it's weird that Lily Tomlin is having an affair with Keith Carradine, because it sort of makes sense. He's built up this music community enough that you can believe that they would get together. Whereas when it's a limited number of subplots, and again, I don't think that Brad and Kate are guilty of being too movie star-ish or too conceited in this film, but Mm -hmm. the sense that everything is meant to rest on these three different subplots does weigh it down in a way that Nashville, which feels so much looser and so much more open and so much more Mm free-flowing, especially in allowing you to take away certain messages from it, I think it loses something in being so limited in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mean as opposed to just uh, four stories instead of like 10 converging together, like as in natural. I don't even know how many natural, but there are definitely more than four. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yes. Um, so when I was reading, doing my research and reading sort of reviews for this, the movie that was brought the most by critics at the time is Crash. And I totally, totally understand why this movie is from 2006. Crash was 2004, five. Four. Yeah, Four. so it's within like a couple of years. So it was fresh on everybody's minds. But I'm not sure, like, you know, now that we have hindsight and we are, you know, 15, 16 years away from those Crash and Babel, I don't think the, the connection or the comparison works because I think Babel is sort of weirder while Crash is just so sentimental and ultimately kind of really bad. (laughs) What do you think? Yes, I definitely feel that way. And I also think this one has some moments that I'm sure people would argue have not aged well, but Crash, it's just insane how tone deaf that movie is where you get the awful scene where Ludacris and Lorenz Tate, I think, are driving along and they're talking about how as African-American men, they get stereotyped and people naturally assume that they're criminals and this frustrates them, which I'm sure is true for a lot of real life African-American men. And then the scene ends on an almost comedic note where he goes, huh, and now we're about to commit a crime. And you just think, why did they think this was okay? And it's just (laughs) not as clever as it thinks it is. Crash, a movie that's so middle brow and so nothing really thought that it had a lot to say. Yeah, it is so heavy-handed. Crash is so heavy-handed. So I think we both agree that Babel is a lot better than Crash. That comparison does not stand at all. So I wanted to ask you, of of these performances, you know, Adriana Barraza, Rinko Cucci, Kate and Brad and Gael Garcia Bernal, and then there are all the Moroccan actors who I think reading about the film, they're 
mostly were non-actors that Iñárritu found um, when he was scouting locations there. Was there a performance that stood out to you um, as maybe the best or the person that did the most with what they had? Well, I think Adriana Barasa does really stand out. I think she's one of those tour de force performances. And again, I only wish that we got to see a bit more of her life, but maybe that's the point where her entire life has been taken over with taking care of these annoying, privileged American children and she <laughs> yeah. has not she has nothing for herself. So maybe it works on that level. And I do think it is a role that definitely allows her to display a lot of emotion. But I also think it's easy to embarrass yourself if you do get a scene that just features you walking around looking absolutely crestfallen, staring up at the sky in the desert. I think that could be so cringy so easily. And I think it's a sign of her being really skilled that it does just hit perfectly there aren't any false notes there. Yeah. I love Barraza too. I agree. That's my favorite performance. And I'll just second everything you said, because I think you said it perfectly. This is a Kate Blanchett podcast. So let's talk about Kate a little bit and this role. I think this is one of her weirdest roles. Um, <laughs> she she literally spends almost the entire movie on the floor of a hut in Morocco. Like that's it. Um, she has one scene where she and Brad sort of like have a fight about, you know, drinking water in Morocco. And then she gets shot and that's it. I mean, the character sort of works within the structure of the screenplay. And I, like we talked already about why you cast movie stars in these roles. So the contrast works with the rest of the story than the rest of the characters and all of that. But I always wondered, besides wanting to work with Amy Aridu, like why did Kate take this role to like spend... I'm, most of, I don't know how many weeks she spent in Morocco, but most of the time she was just on the floor of that hut. Yes, it does seem like a really odd rule for her to take, especially during this period of her career when she's still one of the most in-demand stars in Hollywood, but especially then when she was making all of these exciting choices, it does seem odd that so much of this role is just her suffering, which I think she does very well again. But even Brad, I think, gets a lot more notes to play where he does get the scene where he just sort of offhand informs Adriana Barassa's character that, oh, sorry, we're going to completely put a kibosh on your plans and you're going mm-hmm. to have to stay home. So he gets to play that element of privilege and entitlement in a way that Kate maybe doesn't. And mm-hmm. perhaps it was just an element of her thinking, oh, it's a big project. Maybe Brad is her friend and great, we could hang out in Morocco together. Maybe that was it. Yeah, maybe that was it. So 2006 is one of those years where she had three movies come out. I don't think she's ever had three movies in one year. She usually had she, she goes away for long times and then she comes back with maybe one or two. But three years is sort of um, unheard of. I, there was this very funny um, NPR interview that she did because it was this, The Good German and Notes of a Scandal, all coming out within weeks of each other. And um, I've referenced this interview before. So if you've listened to my episodes on those two other movies, you probably heard this. But she sort of apologizes to the audience for, to quote her, being very present at the moment, which I thought was a funny thing to say. 
Um, but, you know, actors don't control when movies come out. We don't know if she actually shot these movies at the same time or, you know, they were shot over two years and then came out within weeks of each other. But, and I assume you saw all three, Zita. Tell me, which one do you think 2006 was actually a, a big year for her? Um, did she show range in those roles? And what do you think is, your, is her best of the three? I think it ends up being an interesting year because you would think that all three of these projects would be slam dunks for her, but then in the case of the good German, that definitely does not hit with critics or audiences and didn't leave much of an impact. And then in Babel, big, starry, awards-nominated film, but for her, it doesn't earn a whole lot of recognition. And then I think... Notes on a Scandal is definitely the one that has the biggest fan base, at least in terms of the Blanchett fans, I would say. And at the time, it does seem like more of the attention was placed on Judy Dench, which I completely get. She's amazing, as Barbara covered. But I think we have seen more of a critical reassessment of the film now where people yeah. are willing to really go into the trenches for Blanchett performance and point out that Sheba Hart isn't just playing second fiddle to the riveting main character in that film. Yeah. I mean, I remember that year and I remember there was a lot of like Matt cover, press coverage for Blanchett, you know, magazine covers and interviews and everybody was talking about her before the movies came out. And, you know, there was George Clooney was quoted saying that she was going to win the Oscar for the good German. And that sort of quote made it, <laughs> I remember into all um, the interviews and articles about her that year. And I was just like, Oh, she's going to win an Oscar. And then of course the good German came out and nobody cared and people actually <laughs> actively hated it. And in the end, she was invited to the Oscars as a supporting actress for the for Notes in a Scandal. And it is the one of the three that I think you're right. That's the one that people like now. Um, like even Babel people, I don't hear anybody talking much about it. Although it was critically acclaimed at the time, it was very well reviewed and it received many awards nominations, including acting for Barraza and Kikuchi, and it was nominated for Best Film and Director, and I think it won for its score. So, and, it, and I remember very much that it won the Golden Globe for Best Drama over The Departed, and that was the year Martin Scorsese finally won all the awards, but he didn't manage the Golden Globe for Best Film. Uh, <laughs> as an awards year for her, it's quite odd. It does feel like one of those years where she just got handed a nomination for one of the films just because it was such a big year for her. And I think you get that situation quite a lot where people don't end up getting anything. They're in lots of buzzy projects. People agree that they've given good performances in a bunch of films, but they can't quite build up enough momentum for one of yeah. the performances. So I'm so glad that she got something, and especially for Notes on a Scandal, which I do think is her best performance from that year. Yes. Babel got a nomination for Best Picture. And so this made me um, think of that this year, the, the two movies that she has released um, also got nominations for Best Picture. And then according to Variety, which I assume is correct, um, I didn't actually fact check it, but she becomes the number one actress for appearances in Best Picture nominated movies. 
She's appeared in nine of them, apparently, um, including Babylon, the two from this year. So Zita, I thought we can try and name them. Are you ready to try and come up with these nine movies? Oh my goodness. Okay, <laughs> yes, <laughs> let's try it. So what so, is easy is Babel. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth. Yes. Yes. What else is there? And then there is the, two, the two from this year. So that's Nightmare Alley and Don't Look Up. So now we're at four. The Aviator. Yes, that's five. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Yes, six. And the last three are very easy. It's the Lord of the Rings trilogy. All three of them were nominated oh, for Best yes. Picture. <laughs> no, there was a brief moment where I was trying to fool myself into believing that Carol was nominated, but it wasn't. Yes. I mean, it's so funny to me that she got these nominations in all these movies, and I think so many of them will not appear on a reel of her best uh, performances or like when you do a real a lifetime achievement reel that's not what she'll be remembered for like I think Carol and Blue Jasmine which are arguably her two best performances came very close to being nominated for best picture and didn't in the end because obviously there are stories about women which the academy doesn't care <laughs> about um, but if she, those two were nominated she would have 11 which is crazy yeah. It's a really impressive record, and I think it's probably bolstered by the fact that, as you pointed out, she's not afraid to take a supporting role, even though she is a major leading lady. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Before we close the conversation about Babel, I just, there are so many, as I watched this movie this week, there were so many actors that I'm like, oh, I know him, I know her, which at the time in 2006, maybe they were not as well known. So I think Harriet Walter, the people now know from Succession and The Last Duel and others is there. A very young Elle Fanning is there. And this, this Elle Fanning will also appear in Benjamin Button two years later with Kate and Brad as the young Kate. Um, did you notice anyone, Zita? Well, I did notice Clifton Collins Jr., but I don't think that I was quite as eagle-eyed as you were. But yes, as you point out, stacked cast every time you turn your head, there's someone famous on screen. So it's one of those weird cases where, especially Elle Fanning, where you just go, God, she was in everything in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Uh, Michael Pena is there. And then also um, Koji Yakushu, who plays Kikuchi's father. I know him from Koyeda's The Third Murder. So I'm like, huh, I know that face. Is there anything that you wanted to say about Babel that we didn't cover? I guess as a final note, I, I have a question for you, I guess. What do you think of these Oscar Beatty movies, because I'm sorry, I do think this fits into the Oscar Beatty category where people get upset about the fact that they're made seemingly to court awards attention. Do you think it's unfair for people to have that complaint if it ultimately gives us pieces of art that, yes, might have inherent flaws, but that can still be good? Yeah, I mean... Frankly, if there were no Oscar bait movies, I don't know what I'll be watching because I'm definitely not interested in the superhero movies. But I also think it's a little bit an unfair um, designation because most of these filmmakers don't set out 
to win awards or to make a movie to win awards. I'm sure one or two here and there have was like, oh, this script is going to win me the Oscar or whatever. But like most of them set out to just try and find stories that they want to do. And then for these stories to sort of get financed and get released, they have to be released in this corridor of awards. That's the only way these movies will see the light of day. And I think I read an interview recently with Mike Mills, um, who did 20th Century Women. And this year he had Come On, Come On in the awards conversation. And he that movie never uh, didn't actually in the end get any nominations. But he said, I am just happy there is awards. Be- and if I get nominated, if, if one of my movies gets nominated for even one Oscar, that means I can finance my next movie and I can keep working. So I think that's the only reason we get these movies that we like because there is awards, otherwise we won't get them. Mm. Yes, I can't help but agree with you. I think it's so silly when people suggest that awards hinder the not necessarily independent film industry, but the industry that is still making costume dramas and films about historical issues and the types of movies that don't make hundreds of millions of dollars at the multiplex. Yeah. Yep. So Zita, let's end with, I want to ask you one question about Kate Blanchett. So as we've talked about, and as this podcast proves, Kate Blanchett is one of the most respected actors of her generation, in fact, of all generations. Um, she is not underrated, never underrated. I don't think she's overrated. She's just rightly rated. But is there a movie that you think she was underrated in or maybe something that you like of her performances that people don't talk about or don't think of as highly as you do? Yes, so this was quite a difficult one because as you point out, she's so well-liked. People have thoroughly gone through all of her performances and pointed to the ones that they love. So I guess one that I could point to, one that I think people don't talk about that much, is Oscar and Lucinda, which came out slightly before her big breakout with Elizabeth, and I think didn't really get as much recognition as it deserved. And I think she's just so good in it, such a richly detailed performance. I think she already gave off that sense of being able to insert herself into a specific time period without losing that slightly modern quality. And I just wish people would talk about it more for a movie that features Rafe Fiennes and Kate Blanchett. It really doesn't get talked about that much. And it's strange to me, even though it was fairly well received, I believe, upon release. I don't think a negative reception was its problem. Yeah, it's just uh, completely forgotten. But it did lead to her this big career, because I think the story is that Shaker Kapoor saw just the trailer for Oscar and Lucinda. And even though they were nearing a deal with Emily Watson to star in Elizabeth, he changed his mind and cast Kate. So... Um, I don't know if that's a true story or it's a legend, but it sounds like a fun story anyway. (laughs) Yes, yes, definitely. Uh, And so, you know, Kate is going to be very busy the next 
couple of years. She's working with Alfonso Cuaron on Disclaimer, which is a TV series. She finished a movie with Todd Field, Tar. She's working with Pedro Almodovar, which I am so excited about. He is my favorite filmmaker. She's my favorite actor. But is there someone you would like to see her work with, Zita? Yes. So this was another one that I thought long and hard about just because I think, again, she could kind of work with anybody and I'd probably love it. But the one that my mind really gravitated towards and I find it a bit odd that I'm so into this idea, but I kind of want to see her in a Jean-Luc Godard film. And I'm not the biggest <laughs> fan wow. of his work. And yet there's a part of me that thinks she would work really well in one of his movies just because she has that presence. And I think she could really bring that to one of his films. And also with his recent work, I know there are some people who love films, socialisme and goodbye to language and his efforts to break down plot and character and to rebuild new ideas of cinema. But I think if we were talking about a slightly more classical Godard film, if that's even a thing, I think she could bring a sort of, not Anna Karina quality, but I think she could bring real substance to one of his films. And I think it has been an issue for me, at least as of late, that he just has absolutely no interest in letting his actors display any presence or charisma mm -hmm. or efforts to develop characters. So I think in some ways she would be helping him and lifting him up. Yeah. Godard, I admire him as a director, but he's anthemic to me because I'm somebody who loves movies for their emotions and he's all about mm -hmm. form and I just can't abide directors who are all about form. Um, but I know Kate is a huge fan of Godard because when she was the jury president at Cannes and he was in competition, she gave him a special palm door. Like, I think the story, the scuttlebutt is that she wanted to give him the palm door, but the rest of the jury were not on board with that. And as <laughs> the jury president, she had some powers. So she was like, okay, I'm just going to give him a special palm door. So... Ooh. Good for she's, her. Yeah. She's definitely a fan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Zita, this is such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on Sundays with Kate to talk with me about Babel. I really enjoyed it. Um, before we go, please let our listeners know where they can find you and your work. So I'm on Twitter at Zita underscore short, and you can find my writing on Jump Cut Online and in session film so please go read some of my reviews and interviews if you want and listen to your podcast the 300 yes. fashion yes which is on anchor and most of the other mainstream platforms and you can find me on twitter at me underscore says and follow the podcast on twitter and instagram at sundays with kate and until next time thank you for listening